0: Hey, it's Greg Brady in for Kelly Katrera this week. Here's what's on the podcast for this Thursday. What is with China's decision to sentence a third Canadian for a drug trafficking crime to a death sentence? Is this about politics? Is this about Huawei? Or is this simply put... Prime fitting the punishment in the country of China. John Derringer from Derringer in the Morning on Q107 will join us. We'll talk Leafs. We'll talk getting through the pandemic, whether schools are going to reopen or not, and when we'll all be back together at live sporting events and concerts. Here's a hint. And a spoiler alert, neither of us know. And Joe Biden didn't have a great day on video on Wednesday. We'll talk with a political expert as to whether this is a costly appearance and whether there is a designed campaign to keep Joe Biden away from live events. It's the thing a lot of people are talking about. It's all coming up on The Kelly Contreras Show. Greg Brady in for Kelly for the week. China has sentenced a Canadian citizen to death. And we've talked about the two Michaels before a ton. There's great concerns, obviously. And I know a lot of people ended up saying, this is just another broad brushstroke of China pushing us around, talking 5G, talking Huawei, talking, exerting their will, imposing their will upon us. And we won't do a damn thing about it. Or is it this particular case? They've announced that Wu Wei Hong's penalty is a life sentence. What's he convicted of? Well, producing the drug ketamine. Okay, he's got an accomplice. There seems to be evidence. Okay, they, uh, the local media in the uh, southern Chinese city say that at the heart of the country's manufacturing industry, these two are gathering ingredients and making ketamine. Okay, it's an illicit drug. They found 120 kilograms. There's a lot of suspicion about, obviously, China and when people get arrested and when people get sentenced. But is this a case where the suspicion belongs? We're going to talk about it right now. We're going to go right to Beijing, talk to Sean Rain, who's founder of the China Market Research Group. Sean, thank you very much for making the time. I greatly appreciate you coming on. How are you?
1: Nice speaking with you, Greg. We're doing very well here.
0: Good. I'm glad that is the case. Um, Yeah, there is going to be a lot of political discourse back and forth and analysis that this is more of the same from China, but there's going to be some saying that this is a case that is absolutely independent of any tension going on uh, with the uh, Huawei executive, with the two Michaels. What's the the consensus? What's the analysis on your part?
1: So in China, it's very clear that this, arrest and the sentence of death to Wei Hong as uh, a drug trafficker is completely unrelated to the Huawei case with the two Michaels. I think it's quite clear that there was political tit for tat um, by arresting the two Michaels, putting them in jail for the last several years, for China bullying Canada by, you know, attacking and blocking some of the imports of canola oil. But when it comes to drug offenses, I don't really see that as being the case here. It's very clear Xu Hong was making 120 kilograms of ketamine. This is not a small amount. This is not somebody who's just partying for the weekend. He clearly was acting in manufacturing and then distributing and selling, probably not just in China, but maybe even shipping to Canada or the United States. Both countries have criticized China for allowing a lot of exports of drugs. So this is not a political thing by any means.
0: Was it always a certainty that he would end up getting the death penalty? Was there obviously cause from uh, his defense for, for there just to be a jail term, Sean?
1: I think it's pretty clear China likes to issue death penalties to foreigners when it comes to drugs. And not just foreigners, but also Chinese. If you look at it over the last 10 years, you've had 12 foreigners have been sentenced to death for smuggling drugs including um, the Pakistani-British person, Akmal Shaikh, who was executed in 2009, he was only found with four kilograms of heroin. So you also have Cam Gillespie uh, from Australia, who was also um, sentenced to death for smuggling 7.5 kilograms of meth. So China takes a much harsher view to discourage drug use in China um, than maybe the Canadian or the American government. So I think Mm -hmm. this was sort of a foregone conclusion.
0: Sean Raines joining us from Beijing, China, with a Canadian sentence to death for, in essence, drug trafficking. I was going to ask, yeah, th- so three of the twelve sentence to death in the last twelve months are Canadian. Um, I was going to ask what's in it for them, um, but but obviously you could ask that about any mass drug trafficker. But are are the you know is, is the risk given the sentence it's, it's, that's involved? Sean, there obviously are are decisions that get made by these people that the risk and the potential uh, to be sentenced to death is uh, is a risk worth taking to them.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure drug traffickers are the smartest people in general. Give you that. Give give you that. It's better in the (laughs) United States. (laughs) They're a lot more relaxed than China.
0: So politically, uh, there's really do you expect any sort of response? This is not in the least. We've seen Justin Trudeau speak out. We've seen political critics of Justin Trudeau speak out and say, you're not saying enough. You're not doing enough to help, uh, for example, the two Michaels. This this will be seen then, um, do you think, even by the Canadian government as an independent, arbitrary incident?
1: No, um, I think there's a lot of sensationalism and exaggeration in Canada right now about u s, China and Canadian China relations. Um, the Chinese side feels that the arrest of Hmong, the former CFO of Huawei, was an act of kidnapping, and they feel that Canada started the attacks by arresting her and is actually and Trudeau is being used as a pawn by Donald Trump. It's very clear from China that the united states is trying to destabilize the chinese government contain china's innovative growth because whoever's going to control tech- telecom in the future is really going to control the world because technology not weapons is what makes somebody a superpower at this stage so there's a feeling from the chinese side that canada's playing everything all wrong and trudeau is just listening to whatever trump wants and trump every day from closing the consulate general in houston to aiding and abetting the riots in Hong Kong um, is really just trying to destabilize China. And people in China just don't understand why Trudeau would Mm. go along with someone that is so hypocritical like Trump.
0: Sean Rain giving us uh, some great information and analysis. Founder of the China Market Research Group on the Kelly Contreras Show. Greg Brady in for Kelly today. Uh, I'm glad you went there because I was real curious to know. And and I, you know, the people that I've talked to have a very wide variance of opinion on what could transpire, Sean, with a a, a Joe Biden presidency. We know that there has been this tension and yet this hot cold relationship uh, between Trump and the Chinese government. He talked about TikTok last week. He boasted yesterday that he's talked tough with boris johnson about huawei but but a lot of the americans and a lot of the american political climate this is not a partisan issue about huawei it's they seem uniform in not wanting to give them uh presence clearance power in the united states of america and we've given huawei some of that in canada what do you think a biden presidency sean does to change the the concept of what happens with huawei 5g and the like
1: well i think biden is sane and he's not racist So he's going to dial down some of the trade pressure. But I'm not necessarily sure that Biden is going to be a, quote, unquote, good friend of China and try to move back to strong relations. The problem is in the United States right now, there's so much xenophobia and there's so much anger. It's not a partisan issue, as you said. You've got the Republicans and the Democrats are furious at China. You see senators like Tom Cotton from Arkansas or Josh Hawley from Missouri, uh, Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state are looking to scapegoat and and blame China for everything. Um, And that's going to be the way that these, you know, I'd say vile politicians are trying to rally their supporters for the November elections and also for the next 5, 10 years. I'm quite concerned we're going to have 10, 20 years of serious tension and maybe even a hot war. I think analysts are underestimating Mm -hmm um the risks of that
0: i, I wouldn't be shocked that's that's re- I i i think you're bang on with that and we're not seeing canadian politicians reference anything called the the wuhan virus and that's happening more and more not just with the president but uh you know republicans in in general we're starting to see it sean i know it's so late there thank you very much for your insight on uh, on a pretty important topic and and the breaking news of this uh, death sentence for the canadian thank you very much i hope we get to talk again
1: Thank you for speaking with me anytime.
0: Sean Rain is the founder of the China Market Research Group. Um, And I know what you're thinking was probably what I was thinking. Oh, my gosh. Canadian National set up, you know, it's a a kangaroo court sentenced to death. But this sounds like it's, again, you know, you can argue with China's, um, you know, China's justice system. We can have conversations about that. um, But it sounds like a pretty clear case of a drug trafficker. Cutting some corners, getting caught and boom, like like Sean said, uh, the sentence is going to be uh, significant, if not uh, the most significant sentence you can get. That's death. So three Canadians sentenced to death in the last 12 months. And we're not talking about Michael Kovrig and we're not talking about Michael Spavor, um, the one, the diplomat, the other, the entrepreneur um, that have been detained and now uh, sentenced to long, long prison sentences. There is a uh, a news just came in today that the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame is honoring three... Everybody knows these songs. But finally, what took so long? Alan Thick is going into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. What? And you say, Alan Thick? come on. He's the dad on Growing Pains. Uh, he had the talk show. Uh, thought he could, you know, siphon audience away from Johnny Carson. Nobody was able to do that. Thick of the night, anyone? But he wrote this song different strokes you can hear him i always knew that it was him doing the backing vocals because he's on it too and if the last five months haven't told you the world don't move to the beat of just one drum i i don't know what would and he wrote the facts of life that's a little more lamentable to be honest but he also wrote i didn't know this i'm serious i didn't know this and our next guest probably did he wrote the game show theme for wheel of fortune and i got to meet alan thick once when i was doing the bill water show here of course he came in studio and just Alan was a guy that could make you feel amazing, and and uh, Canada and the world lost him way too soon at the age of sixty nine with a heart attack. Uh, our next guest, uh, the host of Derringer in the Morning, a first to me a first ballot Canadian radio Hall of Famer. Although John, you know there were those PED allegations uh, back in in some of your earlier. <laughs> Uh, radio days, and and I and I think you had a couple Billy Martin, Reggie Jackson uh, blowouts with program directors. But beyond that, you're a first ballot radio Hall of Famer to me.
2: I I got I th- I'm thinking on myself as getting McGill need on that one, Greg. I don't <laughs> I don't know that that's <laughs> that's got you never played to be you never played with long.
0: a great center. I'll give you that. Yeah, <laughs> you'd put in those goals. Oh, Pat Lafontaine in Buffalo. I think we could say that that's true. Did you must have come across Alan Thick uh, numerous times, right? He was always around.
2: No, never did me. Never Alan met him. Thicke. No, I I saw him at the opening of the Sky Dome. I think that was his pivotal Toronto moment that that <laughs> night. That didn't go quite as planned. Um, and I I knew he'd written a, a a theme song or two. I didn't know them specifically, but uh, like wh- whoever wrote one eight hundred cars for kids should be in there too. I guess
0: <laughs> can is that not an earworm? Like you're laying there going, God, I got to get five hours of sleep before the show tomorrow, and that song's uh, in my head more than it doesn't matter what I watch. Put on some Zeppelin, put on <laughs> some Brian Adams. I can't get it out. It's it's just cars for kids. Yeah,
2: 1877 cars. That's
0: and now you've got, you've inflicted uh, the AM audience with uh with it in their memory. By the way, I'm listening to your show driving and I heard you guys talking uh, um, you and Garvin talking about Canada's wonderland and I I want to you know, I want you to reiterate a point you made on your show today cuz I thought it was incredibly insightful. No matter what post-pandemic It won't matter where we go and it won't matter what we do. We are all just craving that I'm part of something, that social interaction. Like we've been so, so even with great weather, right? And being outside, you're only playing golf with a couple people at a time or you got five or six people in your backyard. We've been so, so limited by just not feeling a part of something big, right?
2: Yeah. And you know what? Having, having three daughters, the eldest is 16. You really see the impact that it's had on kids. And, and there's there's, you know, that aspect of, you know, to a certain extent, putting a, you know, a band-aid on a brain tumor when it comes to opening all these things that are fun and they're nice activities. But I think what most of us, particularly children crave is a physical closeness to friends, to loved ones. And, and having that ripped away from kids has been, Really, really tough on them. I'll give you an example. So last night, my, my, my daughter, the eldest who's 16 had a few friends over and Greg, I've never heard her happier and she, she hasn't had a, a lot of time or, um, opportunity to be physically close with her friends and i'm sitting in my office and i'm listening to them in the kitchen and they're watching harry styles videos and (laughs) watching their favorite shows and baking a cake and and doing the kind of things that kids should be doing and and having that taken away from them yeah we we might be able to give them amusement parks not this summer but at some point and some of the activities they enjoy but until we get to a point where kids can really be kids and enjoy the community of being children, I, I don't know how much further we'll be able to get.
0: No, no. John Derringer, by the way, uh, our guest on Global News Radio, uh, proud to have him on. And you, I think you nailed something there is that kids have been remarkably adaptable, resourceful, because I think about, John, what if this has happened to me when I was 15, how much my springs and summers mattered to me, mattered to you being outside, Going to gigs, going to Jays games, and and God, like the, it's been wiped out. It, I, I can't imagine how I'd handle it, it all being torpedoed. And I think our kids, as a rule, have been really resourceful about this.
2: I think they've been incredibly impressive and when you even think it back to school as a guy who didn't do particularly well in school the one thing you did enjoy about it was at least you got to hang out with your pals and uh, you know sitting watching the clock during history class was one thing but there was all the interaction that we totally took for granted and I think kids up until March took the same thing for granted. And, you know, one of the things I keep coming back to as well that is, is really, I think, has an effect on the parent-child dynamic is that we as parents have absolutely no experience with this either. So in that respect, we are definitely all in it together. We're all learning.
0: Yeah, I hope. And I, I really I think kids are giving us some wiggle room. Now, my youngest is 12. I've seen parents, John, with a six year old, a four year old, and an eighteen month old, and they don't I, I empathize. I empathize with them before the pandemic. I can't imagine, especially on those those uh, March and April days where you, you can't even take a foot outside. It's 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 pouring rain sideways or it's minus five with a wind chill. And uh and you gotta find you gotta find some way to entertain them. But the I worry, right? We're in August right now and and this, this great weather. We know how it's going to turn for all of us in three months, and uh, if we're not any further ahead, that's not going to be a lot of fun to to go into November and December and and, uh, hibernate again, put it that way.
2: And, and that's one of the reasonable debates when it comes to sending kids back to school. And, I, and I, I think we, you know, know for the most part the push and pull that's going on with kids going or not going back or going back in a, in a hybrid type of fashion. Uh, it's, it's tough to determine. But one thing we do know is that the outdoor education is only going to go so far in Ontario. And that could be, you know, the middle of October when we start to get some weather that is dodgy enough that decisions will have to be made. Sure, September, pretty good chance kids are going to have a lot of time outside for schools that do have some room. That would be an option. But in the school year, we have a lot more bad weather months than we do good weather ones.
0: Oh, totally. Uh, John Derringer from Derringer in the morning on Q107 weekdays, uh, of course, 6 to 10 a.m., uh, a staple here in our city. Um, now, all right, your Leafs, our Leafs, eight o'clock tonight, traditional starting time, like hockey night in Canada was when we were kids. Um, but but tell our audience honestly, are you? How have you felt watching the games? Are you, are you all in like you would be otherwise? Does it still seem kind of preseason coin flip games, like impossible to evaluate? What's your what's the care factor for John Derringer on on your beloved Maple Leafs? Oh,
2: it, it it's high. It's pretty close to one hundred percent. I I think the the NHL's done an outstanding job with the in game presentation. I mean, they've taken the limitations and they have stretched them as far as they can go. I think the arena looks great. Same thing with Edmonton. They mm-hmm. they've done the best job they could possibly do, and I think many of us felt the same way that they, you know, the the various commentators had mentioned the other night where it it sounded and felt so weird when Jake Muzzin went down because everything stopped. And, and there was that immediate rem- uh, reminder that we are in an empty building here. And I thought that was a very stark time. Uh, plus the fact that a guy was, you know, could have been seriously injured. I think they've done an amazing job. And Greg, to to your question, I was really concerned that this might become like a bunch of exhibition games. And on the first day, on August 1st, we watched three games that day, mm-hmm. and every one of them was as close to playoff hockey, I think, as any one of us could expect with what preceded it with four and a half months off.
0: I I think that's so true. I really got into it last night, I'll say. I know that the the Leafs were the afternoon game, and and I was in in and out, saw the Muzzin injury. But last night, Pittsburgh-Montreal last night had Sidney Crosby swearing at the referee in an empty arena, leaving the ice, complaining about penalties. I'm like, there he is. There's Uh the Sidney Crosby I I know and love. And you're right, the Muzzin thing, you were probably... I want to know if you had the same thought. Um, Jim Houston and Craig Simpson, who are great, are doing the game. But they're really quiet and not saying stuff. And I'm like, what's what's going on here? But it, it happened for so long, John, that and and they can the players can probably hear what Jim if Jim Houston and Creek Simpson are really being really loud up there at a, at a starkly quiet moment like that. It's almost like a golf. You're on the 18th hole and not trying to disturb a golfer lining up a putt at the Masters. That's what I felt like it was for the announcers. That couldn't have been easy for them.
2: Yeah, that was definitely a big, big reminder of where we're at and just how empty, you know, a pretty cavernous building holding, what, 19,000 people with, I don't know what, what would they have, a couple hundred people in there altogether, including all the staff? also seeing you know the emergency crew come out in in absolutely full gear almost to the point of hazmat type of gear mm-hmm. these were just kind of little reminders as we went i think the hockey though has been really really good and the players even though most of them have either not played in an empty arena in a long time or have never you know, in their own minds played in a, in a rink that was empty. I think the level of competition has been absolutely as good as could be expected.
0: It's been real good. Yeah. The, I mean, the NHL deserves to get to get its pokes when it doesn't do something right. It's done this right. Like it's, it's an absolute win so far, um, and and I'd say that compared to, to any other sport. All right, the last time I think I think when we talked in April or, or May, maybe we were just hopeful about live music and concerts. And I, I know how passionately you care about going to gigs and the, and the music industry. And so many of our friends, some of the people we know, you know, by, by a common knowledge, it's rough, right? Like Live Nation, their revenue's just been wiped out. They've had to lay people off. We've seen venues, really popular venues, closed or in danger of closing um it's been awful like the big boys will be fine The you know the big acts can do all their reunion tours and head right back out next summer but i can't imagine we were talking about younger people younger acts john who now need the touring revenue because albums don't mean what they used to with spotify and all that um I, i can't i think about it every day i think about the music industry every day and how much people are probably really suffering and there's no end in sight
2: and, and and I think there is a tendency when you talk about the music industry to immediately go to the biggest acts. Well, for every huge artist, there are a 100 artists that are worthy of your time that you just may not have heard about or for whatever regional reason, you just don't know. And for every one of those artists, there are roadies, there are people that do their merch, there's catering, there's all these truck drivers, bus drivers, there are all kinds of people who uh, I guess admit, cases van drivers when you come to smaller bands, uh, you know, going the hardcore logo route across the country Mm. and what could have been a food truck um, with a hole in the floor but that that's that's rock and roll right it, it's not you two on the road with you know 18 or 25 trucks it's it's bands artists men women who ply their trade and many of them spend all summer i mean i think of a band like trooper how many years has trooper gone across this country in summer i'd say like every year since nineteen seventy. seriously yeah and and for the members of the band that's you know that's one thing but there's everyone else involved in it and it's a huge huge industry that in most cases isn't low unionized you have some unions that are involved generally on the local level but these are people who have very little recourse and they may have been planning going out on a small tour a large tour, and that has totally been taken away and we haven 't even discussed what this has done to the minds of those who who set their summer calendar around the concerts they want to see totally really, really tough
0: the one uh, op- I thought this was optimistic yesterday because live nation put a statement out, and, and Michael rapino noted eighty six percent of fans eighty six percent decided they would keep their tickets for rescheduled shows. I have a couple. I think I think you mentioned your daughter was going to go to Harry Styles anyway and you've probably kept those tickets cuz you're hoping we'll just we'll flip the calendar, we'll do all this next year around the same time and fingers crossed it happens, man.
2: Yeah, I, t- I tell you a funny story. It was, I, I'm going to say late eighties and a friend of ours worked for Labatt. And at that time, there was massive competition between Labatt and Molson for the concert dollar. So there was all kinds of promotion they were doing. One would sponsor all the shows at Kingswood Music Theater. The other would do the CNE grandstand. And Molson and Labatt really had a thing going on. And so one of my friends at Labatt said, well, there's a guy who's going to start working with us. He's up in Thunder Bay and uh, he's a guy I know. Seems like a good guy. Like, let's all welcome him to town and it was Mike Rapino and who would have thought that this kid from Thunder Bay who was coming down to just work some shows for Labad at that time would go on to become the the kingpin of an organization mm. as huge as Live Nation just just massive massive hey i the love man's done well for himself
0: uh he's got a couple quarters to rub together yeah uh yeah um but uh it it you know it pays to know people Michael Rapinoe is a good guy to know. You were uh, fantastic today. Thank you so much for coming on. Have a good show in the I, you love these 4-day work weeks. I mean, this is great. It's already Thursday, John. Just one more one more one more time for the alarm to set at 3:45 a.m. and roll down to your office, right? You
2: got it, buddy. But I can't wait to get back to work at some point. I miss my guys. I miss everyone around there. I miss seeing so many folks. And strangely enough, I really miss the drive to work at
0: five o'clock in the morning. Amazing. Well, you're a big part of this building. We got to have you back in. And thanks, John. I loved having you on. Thank you, Greg. Much appreciated, buddy. Not a good interview for Joe Biden yesterday. He did an interview. uh, And the question yesterday with uh, Errol Barnett, who's a CBS reporter, um, and he did it for the National Association of Black Journalists. He was asked about taking a cognitive test. Uh, and later, he, he made an analogy about taking cocaine. He asked the anchor if he was a junkie. Uh, it didn't go well. Joe Biden will be 78 uh, before he's sworn in as U.S. president, if you are to believe the polls. But the performance yesterday was concerning, and politics is pretty partisan in the U.S. right now. I don't need to tell you that, uh, but on both sides of the political aisle, there was concern about his performance, and, and there's been a, a thought process that they have sheltered Joe Biden in this pandemic. They have hidden him. They have kept him from a lot of live appearances, um, and there's going to be concern about how the debates are going to work. Leonard Steinhorn's a fantastic uh, CBS News political analyst, and he's kind enough to take some time to join us. Now, Leonard, thanks for your patience. I appreciate you waiting through the break. Uh, give me your sense about the performance yesterday and did that just raise not just whispers, but louder conversations among Democrats that um, you know, if there's any swing voters, that they could lose them based on performances like that from uh the Democratic candidate.
3: Well let's be clear, Joe Biden has performed like that on and off over the years. Um he's sometimes rambled, he's sometimes said things in circular manners. He hasn't always chosen the most elegant or even appropriate sort of analogies or metaphors. Um, so uh, if we wanted to decode what Joe Biden was saying yesterday, um, what he was basically saying is, look, anybody can throw out an insinuation. And if the media keep covering that insinuation about somebody, then it appears to people that it's truth. And all of a sudden you have to defend yourself from something that isn't true, but everyone believes it's true because somebody threw out that insinuation. And in effect, what he was saying is that the Trump campaign has been making his age and mental fitness an issue in this campaign. And all of a sudden, because the Trump campaign has been saying it, then all of the media cover it. And when the media cover it, people think it's true. And that then begins to erode support uh, Mm -hmm. from Joe Biden's uh, candidacy. But he certainly didn't help himself By answering it in the way he did, because it just reinforced the allegations or the the claims or insinuations about him, even though he's been like this for many, many years, and it may have nothing at all to do with his age.
0: Leonard, he had moments on the campaign trail, didn't he, during the primary season where... Um, you know, he'd lose temper. He'd be like, okay, fine. Don't vote for me and walk away. His he's handsy. He would put his hands on men. He was put his hands on, on a woman's shoulders while explaining a point to them. And, and those videos hit the newscasts and get played over and over again. Um, he survived those moments, but again, not a good look. And as you said, there's a, there's a history and a pattern here.
3: Yeah, so then the question is, um, you know, is if it's the same history and the same pattern and you see it over and over, um, there are two ways to look at it. One, uh, is it, you know, fair to then suggest it about his age, okay, because mm-hmm. it's been that way for a long time. But two, uh, is it a reasonable uh issue to say, hey, does he have the intellectual uh clarity uh to be president? But once again, um, you know, you can also parallel what he said many times with what the president has said um, when he's uh, urging people to inject, uh, you know, sort of disinfectants as a way to deal with with uh, the coronavirus. And my hunch is that what you really do have, if somebody scientifically went out and looked at all of the things that both candidates have said, is you've had sort of a parallel of sort of jumbled thinking at times um, and a parallel of of clear thinking at times. And so the very fact that the Trump campaign is making this an issue and continues to make it issue suggests to me that in their focus groups and their polling, that it seems to be resonating with a significant, maybe not a huge, but a significant, A number of voters and they're going to keep driving this and the worst thing joe biden can do is what he did yesterday which Mm -hmm. is basically to make it even more an issue
0: leonard Steinhorn joining us on global news radio 640 toronto greg brady uh here do you look at the scenario where we will ever it's hard to know where we're going (laughs) from day to day week to week with our our future in general but the ike the concept leonard of a 77 year old running against a 74 year old ronald reagan ran in 1984 and he was he was 72 and we thought and and you know he forgot some stuff of, uh during Iran Contra in 1987 we thought that's about the most the, that's about the most rope we'll give somebody cognitively that's supposed the, most, the mo- most rope we'd give somebody age-wise and we we've obviously given more rope uh, you know 30 years later
3: yeah we have um and uh, but if we were simply to choose a president based on intellectual discipline and the absolute clarity of their sentences Um, we would never have chosen let's say a george w bush or even a george hw bush and we would have chosen somebody like uh, al gore Mm -hmm. or hillary clinton so the american people are looking for things beyond sort of uh, absolute intellectual clarity Um, and what they want is a form of leadership Uh, the question is whether joe biden undermines his claims to leadership when he can't seem to uh, articulate a basic question he should have been prepared for, um, and one that you know has been out there in sort of the political conversation and ecosystem. Um, but Joe Biden brings a different type of leadership. His is very interpersonal. You mentioned sort of the touching part. He's touchy feely, in maybe not only a, a literal way, but a figurative way. Um, this is somebody uh, who feels the pain of others because he's experienced so much pain himself. So people bring different things to leadership positions, and. Americans don't simply judge them based on uh, how clear their sentences are and whether they can speak in full paragraphs. Otherwise, we'd be talking about their re-election campaign of Hillary Clinton right now. Totally. And and I'm
0: so glad you brought that up because I was going to say the Democrats have been burned before, not during a global pandemic, by the candidate they choose maybe uh, a little colder, a little autocratic. Michael Dukakis never lived down the answer to, to, you know, from Bernard Shaw as to whether if his wife had been raped and murdered, how he'd respond in a debate in 1988, Um, John Kerry just didn't exert and exude enough emotion. And and Joe Biden does that in spades. Do you see him, Leonard, as a one term president? That seems he's never going to say that he is right now. Um, But the prevailing thought is that we get America cleaned up. we, We do. They do the best we can. They do the best they can. The Democrats and they may need the support of the Senate and the House to do just that. But that he won't run again in 2024 at the age of 81 and a half.
3: Yeah, look, I think there are many vibrant, vigorous, clear-headed octogenarians, um, my old advisor at college is reaching his upper 90s, and he's one of the most clear-thinking individuals I know. But um, so it may not have any indication of somebody's mental acuity, but it also has to do with their energy. Their stamina, their ability to marshal all of their resources at a certain point in life to be able to address the most complex job job in the world, especially when crises hit and you have to be there lacking sleep and making decisions. So I think it's a real legitimate concern that people might have. And I think you're right. Joe Biden's not going to say it. But I think that's why a lot of attention is going to be paid to his vice presidential candidate, because it could well be, as it is with President Trump and Vice President Pence, that somebody at this age could have a serious health issue and may not be around much longer. So Mm -hmm. uh, if it's Joe Biden does last out his full term, people are going to be saying, "Okay, who is he going to pass the baton to? And would that be the person who served as his vice president? So, yeah.